You are listening to Anti-Institutional Extremism, Causes and Responses, a podcast series from the International Center for Counterterrorism. In our third podcast series, we discuss the issue of anti-institutional extremism. This series considers what is anti-institutional extremism? What does anti-institutional extremism look like in North America and Europe today? And how can it be addressed? Hello, I'm Dr. Joanna Cook, Editor-in-Chief and Senior Project Manager at ICCT. Welcome to the show. It is my pleasure to be your host here today. On our first episode, we discussed the definition and evolution of anti-institutional extremism more generally, and also how researchers can more effectively research this phenomenon and contribute to better understanding what we're looking at today. Today, we'll focus on the more specific example of anti-institutional extremism in North America. We'll also consider who is involved and how it is evolving in the particular context. But first, I'd like to introduce our two guests today. First, we have Professor Martha Crenshaw. She's a senior fellow emerita at the Center for International Security and Cooperation and Friedman Spokely Institute and a professor of political science by courtesy at Stanford. She was the Colin and Nancy Campbell Professor of Global Issues and Democratic Thought and Professor of Government at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, where she taught from 1974 to 2007. She's written extensively on the issue of political terrorism. Our second speaker today is Professor Ari Parlinger, who is a professor at the University of Massachusetts Lowell and has over two decades of expertise in terrorism studies, security policy, and extremism. He served as the director of terrorism studies at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and directed the graduate program in security studies at U.S. at UMass Lowell. And his latest book, American Zealots, delves into the history and contemporary trends of right-wing domestic terrorism. He's also trained professionals from agencies like the FBI, CIA, and ICE, and briefly high-ranking government and military officials. So we have two excellent speakers uh, to, to really dig into this topic with, and I welcome you both today. So Ari, let's start with you. What does anti-institutional extremism look like in North America today? Is it an anti-government movement, anti-institution, or how would you best describe what we're looking at in the case of the U.S.? Well, I think I think that I would argue that we are mainly talking about anti-federal government or anti-federalists. I don't think that they are necessarily against all kinds of institutions, and I think many of them have significant appreciation of some institutions, such as religious institutions. Many of them have very strong affinity and, and very uh, positive approach, for example, towards the military. So uh, I think that I feel less comfortable using a term such as anti-institutionalists or anti-authority. I think they're fine with some authorities, but not others. And I think their main animosity is aimed towards the federal government and its various proxies and agencies. So when you're talking about, you know, the contemporary uh, 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 anti-federal or anti-government groups in, in the U.S., we're talking about groups of, of civilians which engage in promotion of an ideology that aims to undermine the authority and the legitimacy of the federal government. They have very strong affinity for conspiracy theories about various cabals of elites who are controlling the U.S. government and do not represent the will of the American people. And they also believe that the federal government, especially in the last several decades, is undermined a lot of the American ethos and the cultural foundations of the country. 
and uh, and also they are very. Uh, uh, I think the overall perception of the government is as a very intrusive, aggressive actor that is undermining their civil liberties and their constitutional rights. And they believe that they have a duty to counter those kind of tendencies of the federal government. And, uh, and you know, in the last year, it's expanded to other areas such as uh, land ownership policies, environmental policies, and so on. All those new areas where they believe that the government is, again, exploiting its power to increase its uh, its impact. So if, if you were to expand on this a little bit further, who is it that is involved in uh, in this movement today? Uh, what would we, for, so firstly, would we even refer to it as a movement? Or how, how would we, do we describe it as a, as a movement, a, a conglomerate of different actors or, or groupings? How would you first describe that in a little bit more detail. So I think we're, we're talking about a decentralized movement in the sense that while there are some very familiar leaders, mainly the founders of some of the more known or familiar okay, organizations, such as the, you know, the founders of the three percenters or the Oath Keepers and so on, in general, a, most of these movements is actually comprised of local chapters or local associations of, 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 of citizens who are basically operating for the most part in their own areas, in their own regions, and so on. Also, the different, different parts or different components of these ideological movements are focusing on different aspects. So, for example, we know that there's some groups that are focusing on a, a border patrols, for example, that they are focusing on quote unquote protecting the, the country from what they perceive as invasion of illegal immigrants, for example. So they, it's almost, uh, they see themselves as a vigilante that helping the government facing, you know, the invasion of immigrants from the South. Others are focusing more on a second amendment issues and they are emphasizing a very masculine militaristic culture, right? They may engage in some kind of military training and stockpiling ammunition and in general, developing a very masculine uh, militaristic uh, framework. So, uh, and, and finally, I would say that, and for me, some of the more concerning new developments is the fact that we do see associations of actual law enforcement who also engage in this kind of rhetoric and ideology. I think one of the most known, for example, is the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers of America, the CSPOA, which is basically organizations of actual sheriffs and this movement encouraged its members to defy, uh, uh, to defy, uh, you know, federal authorities or federal regulations. During COVID-19, for example, they actually called their people not to enforce uh, public health regulations, for example. So we are talking about some inroads that this ideology and movements was able to gain within law enforcement. And of course, there's also a lot of evidence that the movement was able to make inroads also within our armed forces. There's significant presence of a, of, of a members of the armed forces as well as a lot of veterans. So this is another area of concern because they bring a lot of operational knowledge, a lot of experience, and a lot of credibility in the eyes of, the, of many Americans to those movements. Yeah. Uh, and Martha, let me turn to you for a moment and you know, you, you are one of these, these, um, figures in the field who has really helped found and, and define the field. And in, in your perspective, do you follow the same 
definition that, that Ari has just given about anti-institutional extremism? Or how would you think anti-institutional extremism fits with some of our other kind of conceptions of extremism we've historically looked at? That's a really very big problem because, for example, we use the term terrorism indiscriminately sometimes to apply to all violence performed by these groups when much of the violence that these groups have engaged in has been uh, sporadic, uh, low level, more along the lines of street fighting, violent protest. Uh, there has been, of course, what we would classically call terrorism, but a lot of it has been, if not spontaneous, uh, not necessarily centrally directed from a leader who sent down orders to attack a specific target. Uh, Proud Boys, for example, one of the more organized components of this movement uh, was very fond of provoking fighting and by protecting speakers, for example, uh, with whom they sympathize, but who they knew would draw protesters, uh, attacking protesters. And sometimes this did result in serious injury, death, uh, arrests, prosecutions, convictions uh, of these people. It's uh, very fluid, very decentralized, with, again, some more organized components, such as Oath Keepers, and as Ari pointed out, often these are composed of local state-level chapters, some of which broke away, for example, in the aftermath of January the 6th, which provoked a good bit of splintering and fracturing within a movement that was already extremely fractured. Uh, part of the issue for them in terms of organization is both an opportunity and a, a risk, and that social media. Many are organized not necessarily even face-to-face, -face, but through social media. Very difficult to know what your membership is, the size of a particular group. Uh, an individual could belong to more than one group at once. Uh, cooperation among the groups tends to be very loose. Uh, you don't have as tight a level of organization as you would in a classic underground conspiracy. And I think part of the reason for that is uh, they feel they have a very strong perception of social acceptance. And as Ari has pointed out, you have military, police, uh, even sometimes DHS employees who've been involved in these movements, and they regard themselves as legitimate. They regard themselves as the rightful heirs to the tradition of the American Revolution and the original Constitution. They are very convinced of their own moral rectitude in this. Um, so I think that's all been very uh, important to them. Uh, I agree with Ari completely that the presence of law enforcement, both at demonstrations as well as membership in these groups, is extremely alarming. And what's also alarming to me is that some groups, such as Patriot Front, which was active very much on the U.S. West Coast, now appears, for example, in Alabama, where I live now. <laughs> they, they are engaged in protest demonstrations. And they've also shown themselves to be uh, opportunistic, I think we might say, by taking on new causes. For, for example, most recently, post-January the 6th, uh, anti-gay pride, uh, anti-gay causes, and uh, basically adopting what they regard I think they regard, since we don't always know exactly how they think, as what would be uh, a cause likely to attract more widespread social support among very some people who are, who are really extremely conservative. So uh, all this means it's really 
uh, as we all know, extremely difficult uh, to deal with it because sometimes what they're doing is perfectly legal. They're not at risk of any kind of crime. And they are actually, they have, if not active, highly mobilized support, uh, some support, uh, and they perceive themselves as supported by elites in uh, in the higher levels of the political system. Now, I, I think it would be very helpful in the U.S. context to to really clarify who it is we're actually speaking about. And and I've heard you discuss several groups that we're all quite familiar with. You've mentioned the Patriot Front, the Three Percenters. These are groups I would traditionally associate with right-wing violent extremism. And when we're talking about anti-institutional extremism, are we talking about two separate two separate kind of ideologies? Do we see a, a bit of a merging of an ideology? Does anti-institutional extremism sit under right-wing wild extremism in your mind? Ari, maybe I can uh, direct this to you in the first instance. So first of all, I'll just to put it, you know, to be very clear that uh, I actually reject some of the discourse that we see in our field basically arguing that what we have is a big salad bar or we have some kind of a conversion of all the groups into a one movement. I think uh, if you actually read and you're actually listening, it's very clear that there's still some significant distinctions in their rhetoric, in their, in the things that they are covering, in the forms of activism that they support and encourage. So I think, I think in this regard, Yes, I think, I think we've seen several collaborations, such as in the United the Rally events in Charlottesville, such as in January 6th. But these were basically events that were coalesced around their uh, support for, for the Trump administration or for Trump individually. In general, for example, most of the un- members of anti-government groups will feel very uncomfortable if you associate with them with skinheads or neo-Nazi organizations or the more traditional uh, racist group. Um, uh, same goes for some of the more religious fundamentalist organizations that are, are in some cases, promote xenophobia and racism, but they are coming from a very different political culture. I think also that, and this is, since you mentioned, this is a, a comparative effort to understand the differences between different countries. Uh, I think that we need to acknowledge that there's a, a part of U.S. history, part of the American history, is ingrained suspicion against a central power, which began already shortly after and during the Revolutionary War and consistent since then. Part of America's history is the story of many movements and many parties, political parties as well, or parts of political parties, that were very, very suspicious about putting too much power in one central authority. And until today, you can see that actually on both parties, you have strains of this line of thought about we always need to be very careful. Now, the anti-government movement in the U.S. took it uh, farther through the usage of a populist language and populist rhetoric. And by connecting that to a lot of other things that are usually more associated with far-right extremism, such as the issues of immigration, such as their positions on a, a, on a, the role of or how we define what America is and who are Americans. And in general, I think that a, they, they adopted, and this is something that we see more recently, they adopted a lot of the talking points of other, a, of, of other I guess, far-right or, or right-wing 
organization and movements and politicians. So, for example, if you're looking at some of the more uh, recent rhetoric of the three percenters, for example, you see how much they inflame hostility towards institutions of higher education, for example, right? So they, they're like, they'll say, you need to be vigilant, kill your TV, kill your professor and think for yourself, for example, which in many ways they take this kind of the talking points of the, of the American right about the so-called uh, uh, brainwashing or indoctrination of American youth in, in so-called liberal universities, right? So they take those kind of, of grains of, of arguments that usually are very common in the mainstream American right. And they further develop it and they utilize more extremist, more aggressive, uh, in some cases, more masculine language to, to emphasize those and to mobilize support for their cause. In our, in our last episode, when we were talking with Tori Bjorgo, he was highlighting how historically there have been a lot of movements who have uh, been anti-government. And this is not something restricted to the U.S. And, and he was highlighting even... Uh, um, anarchist movements in, in Russia in the 1880s. And so this is something that has sat both on the left and the right and, and a little bit in between. But Martha, perhaps going, um, looking at the case of the U.S. and how we've seen anti-institutional extremism evolve, you know, how has this evolved or stayed aligned with some of this more historical anti-institutional extremism? And the, you know, the anti-institutional or anti-government um, extremist cases that have really jumped out in my mind historically in the case of the U.S. have included things like the Oklahoma City bombing, Ruby Ridge, Waco. Those have really been the, the kind of cases in the U.S. that have struck me as really anti-government and in their, um, in their motivations and in their targets. But from your perspective, how has this movement today really evolved with or stayed aligned with some of these more historical movements, particularly in the U.S.? Well, I think that those were formative historical events in the development of this movement, if we can really call it a movement. I, I share Ari's uh, skepticism about calling it something that appears to be as unified as a, a genuine social movement. But uh, if you look, for example, at Timothy McVeigh and you look at what appear to have been some of his triggers, one was uh, Clinton's efforts uh, to restrict the sale of guns. This was regarded as threat. To him, it was regarded as overreach on the part of the federal government. And so he was determined to attack a federal government target. He thought he was attacking the FBI headquarters there in Oklahoma City, wound up killing, of course, a lot of children in, uh, in a daycare center. Uh, also, the, uh, the anti-federal government overreach movement, such as uh, uh, Ruby Ridge, uh, even Waco, which that group wasn't really part of this overall right-wing stream. It was more of a religious fundamentalist group that was perhaps violating social norms. And then, of course, uh, the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge standoff in the western United States. Uh, uh, in some cases, these standoffs led to bloodshed. Uh, Waco, in particular, in the Branch Davidians, also uh, Ruby Ridge. And this created a sense, I think, of urgency on the part of the movement. Uh, so I think all of this feeds in together in a sort of stream of events that in many cases appeared to validate anti-government beliefs, beliefs that the federal government in particular was uh, not only overreaching and overbearing, but dangerous, hostile, likely 
they, they're out to kill you is the sort of idea. And I agree with Ari that in the U.S. in particular, the notion of states' rights has always been extremely strong, was strong in the very formation of the government with the, uh, a bicameral system. It's apparent in the Constitution. It's apparent in any debates that you see now, for example, over policy on abortion. Should this be at the level of the federal government or at the state government? So this is a very deep and broad strain of which you find extreme beliefs on uh, on the fringe of it. I would also point out that one thing that along these lines sparked the kind of regeneration of this movement, we might say, was anti-COVID restrictions. So here's something where none of us liked the restrictions. Uh, most of us accepted them as, as necessary for, for our health and the health of other people. But to a group that already suspects the government, they regard this simply as an excuse uh, to basically take over and take away your freedoms. You have to wear a mask. Uh, throw that in line with the suspicion of left-wing intellectuals in the universities and the scientific establishments who are brainwashing us, etc. Uh, all this, you can see how it all feeds in together into what is just a very loose coalition of beliefs that are not all uniform by any means. Uh, as far as a comparison with the early anarchists, indeed even later anarchists, uh, yes, uh, anarchists were anti-government, uh, anti-elite, uh, but I'm not sh sure how far to take the comparison because the historical background is, is really so different. So you've just mentioned uh, anti-COVID restrictions as a, as a more contemporary uh, trigger, perhaps we'll call it, um, of, of the anti-institutional e extremism today. Um, are there other issues that they, they really tend to be focusing on or, or fixating on, or what is really driving this trend today? Uh, Ari, let's maybe, uh, Ari or Martha, who, who would like to jump in first here? Well, I'll just throw in a couple of things. And one, of course, is Second Amendment and gun control. That's still a very live issue, never mind the fact that here in the United States, almost many parts of the country, anybody can carry, can purchase a gun and carry it and carry it openly, uh, which I regard as very uh, alarming. Uh, there is still uh, anti-COVID, there is anti-gay, uh, there, there are elements of white uh, supremacism and racism mixed in there. Uh, all of these things. And of course, everything now is being stirred up by the anticipation of the 2024 election and Trump running again and the belief that uh, Trump not only uh, was cheated out of his victory, but now is being persecuted by the federal government of uh, the courts being an active part of the persecuting uh, entity out there. Uh, all this has got it riled up. Again, uh, I think that these groups and individuals are taking their cue from political elites uh, on this score uh, who, uh, who have something to, to answer for there. So th those are what I would think of as the triggers now. So I, I completely agree with Mark. I think these are great points. I think also the issue of immigration is very uh, prominent in a lot of their discourse. I would also mention that I think when we're thinking about the American context, I think it's also important to understand that we're talking a lot, we need to understand the implications of geography. I think probably not mentioned a lot, but 
the initial emergence of the militia movement in the 80s and the 90s was related to the fact that on the coasts, there was a rapid economic, financial, technological developments in the 80s and the 90s, right? We had the, you know, the, the, the threatening and the emergence of, of huge financial institutions on the East Coast, the Silicon Valley on the West Coast. And at the same time, in the, in the Midwest and in the central parts of the country, people were suffering as part of the farm crisis. The agricultural sector was really a, a underwater. And they felt in many ways that it's not just that the government abandoned them after they fed America for so many decades. They also felt that they are not part of this growth, technological, financial, economic growth in America, and that they are in many ways also isolated culturally-wise. You see that, for example, in the politicization of country music, for example, in many cases. So I think when we're trying to understand the, the, the impetus of the militia movement, it's also a sense of a very significant cultural division that are also part of the geographical division. And when you look at electoral politics in the U.S., it's very clear that we don't have red states and blue states. We have blue cities and everything else is red. And it's not a coincidence that we see the emergence of those kind of anti-government organizations in a lot of those rural uh, rural areas or uh, in the Midwest, in, in areas that are that people are already feel a little bit abandoned, a little bit isolated, a little bit disenfranchised already. And uh, so I think we also need to understand that the context of this kind of political polarization that is being driven also by geographic factors and by the fact that there's a overlap between the political cleavages and the cultural and geographical ones further intensify all those dynamics that, that Marta mentioned as well. Mm-hmm. And you, you've mentioned several contemporary issues that have really affected this or, or that this, this movement is, is really, this disparate movement is, is really focusing on. And I wonder if, if you could speak to the, the issue that um, really stands out in a lot of minds about um, contemporary, um, contemporary issues or, or events in the U.S. And that was the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And Martha, perhaps I'll, I'll direct this to you, but how do we see or do we see the January 6th um, attack on the Capitol and the trials? Do we see this impacting these actors today as well? Well, that's a very good question. And I have actually thought about it, uh, the reaction of the different groups and individuals to January the 6th. I think that it set the movement back to a certain extent in that people who were uh, not as totally committed as others, but who were caught up in the spirit of the moment, uh, replied to the appeal to come to Washington, uh, basically joined in, and they've later now expressed remorse, whether that is just uh, an attempt to reduce a prison sentence, but the very serious prison sentences handed down to quite a number of people, I think has set back people who might be more casual followers uh, of the movement. Uh, In many cases, we would then predict that what would emerge would be uh, more tightly organized, more committed, more deeply motivated underground conspiracies who are trying to avoid getting caught the next time around. Uh, They won't parade around in their camouflage outfits with their uh, significant 
identifiers such as the Proud Boys uh, colors, uh, types of garments. Uh, they would avoid that. They would try to be a bit more clandestine, more typical of what we think of as underground uh, conspiracies. I don't think we're seeing so much of that. And to me, the question is why. Uh, certainly, we what what I see is more of a deflection. Uh, so, so, for example, anti-liberal education, anti what they think is very dangerous, which is critical race theory, which is a very arcane legal theory that most of us don't understand, even though we're college professors. I try to convince people that I couldn't possibly teach it in a classroom. I don't know enough at all. Um, so it's sort of been deflected into more cultural, educational sorts of areas and not in terms of a direct confrontation with the government. But I fear that it could shift again uh, going forward, particularly as we're entering a period of very intense political activity uh, characterized by high levels of polarization, as Ari pointed out. And I also think thrown into this very dangerous and volatile mixture is anti-Semitism. And I have some apprehension that uh, what's going on now in the Middle East, uh, Israel, Gaza, uh, surrounding states, uh, Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, may provoke uh, anti-Semitism. It can provoke anti-Muslim violence, of course, which we've already seen, and also anti-Semitism. So it remains to be seen how these events, totally unexpected uh, by all of us, uh, are going to affect these, these movements. Mm-hmm. And, and perhaps I'll direct this one to Ari now, but if, and because you did mention that this does tend to be a bit more of a, a masculinized movement, and this was a, a word that you used uh, in particular, but if we were to describe who is drawn to this movement or, or what kind of actors, if we were to talk about the, the kind of demographics or the, the features of who's being drawn to this, who would you say is this, this movement really appealing to today? So I, I think that First of all, I think it's important to emphasize that the data that we have is very partial in terms of the membership. But what we do know and what we do have shows that there's definitely a, a, the movement is more attractive to men. Men, in terms of the portion, are much more attracted. I know that in January 6th, we see also uh, others. But again, as, as Martha mentioned, a lot of those were not core members of those movements, people that were just, you know, a, in, in the sphere of the moment decided to go. But I think that In many ways, I would argue that this movement also represents a broader backlash within the far right against what they perceive as the the, marginalization of men, what they perceive as oppression of masculinity, what they perceive as efforts to uh, emasculate men, especially in the West, in West, in the Western world. So they provide almost a safe haven, an enclave where men can restore or feel that they can engage in many of those activities, rhetoric, language, behaviors that may not be completely legitimate anymore or where our, the legitimacy is a bit ambiguous right now, right? So it's very common and, and we've seen that a lot when we reviewed uh, uh, their, uh, uh, you know, their discourse that uh, misogynist language is very prevalent and very common. And in many ways, it seems like uh, it provides them, again, as I said, a sense that they can retain what their own traditional perceptions. And of course, this plays into their broader argument about those kind of efforts of the federal government to enforce 
cultural changes, linguistic changes, of course. We can see that the issue of pronouns became a lightning road to many of those, of those movements, right? So they see all those efforts as a part of the federal government efforts through its various institutions, whether it's the, you know, the Department of Education and so on, to enforce some kind of a new uh, paradigm of culture that they that they reject, and they think that this new paradigm or cultural uh, changes, first and for all, uh, undermine men's sta- status or men's opportunities and so on. So it definitely is built into an a, an ongoing discourse within the far right in general, and probably not just in the U.S. about a, a, the ongoing quote-unquote oppression and marginalization of men. Well, so we've we've discussed a wide range of actors, a wide range of of interests, some overlapping features, some overlapping grievances. But if we're if we're looking at the U.S. today, Ari, how would you say these these actors are are linked in the con in the country itself within the the U.S. I think that they are mainly linked online. So I think they are sharing similar uh, similar platforms or similar online communities where they can share ideas, they can prolif- they proliferate ideas, they can develop uh, their unique narratives. Uh, and I think in this sense, it gives them a sense of empowerment because we're talking about very large communities. So, and this kind of empowerment unfortunately can also lead to actual action. When you feel that you have a substantial constituency behind you, when you get so much positive reaction of your ideas about the need to fight the federal government, about the need to counter, you know, the government oppression, uh, and so on and so forth, it's not it's not surprising that some of those individuals feel so empowered that they feel this urge to do to go and do something about that. And this is why I agree with Martha that I'm not concerned about another January six. I think January six, in many ways, a a was was was. Uh, of course, it was it was a, a, a very challenging situation for the country, but I'm way more worried about local chapters that are being that feel even more frustrated, even more angry because of this of, of all the legal procedures against the participant of genocide that see that as an actual oppression. And many leaders on the right side of the political spectrum emphasize those kind of sentiments and emotions that they are, you know, that they are basically prosecuted by the government, that they are being, uh, you know, targeted by the government. And I'm concerned about local groups that will try to engage in some sophisticated plots, right? We've seen this, the, the Wolverines in Michigan that were planning to, to kidnap a Gretchen Whitmer, the Michigan's governor, right? That's what concerns me. Local people that will try to do some, uh, some actions against maybe, a, you know, a, a federal facilities or a local a, a institutions and so on. I think this is where I would put much of, of the focus. I think the capital is pretty safe right now. Mm-hmm. Well, and Martha, and um, so uh, as a Canadian, we know that uh, I know personally that what happens in the U.S. generally tends to reverberate well beyond the U.S., uh, including places like Canada and Europe. And I know this has been a, a focus for a recent report that you've co-authored. And when we're looking at this movement today, how do you see this reverberating or impacting um, beyond the borders of the U.S. in places like Canada or Europe? Well, that's uh, a very good question. We did explore this at 
uh, at some length in a report that can be found on the website of the Insight uh, Consortium that's a, a center sponsored by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Uh, I think that links across countries, uh, cross-border links, transnational links are still very weak, uh, which makes sense given the great uh, uh, fluidity within the American movement itself to think that you could have really tight cooperation. You do have some groups like Proud Boys, for example, that ostensibly has chapters in Canada, uh, Australia, uh, New Zealand. Uh, they've claim to have some in other places, but these are largely autonomous units out there that simply adopt the name, uh, the symbols, the memes, uh, and communicate via social media. Uh, they, they aren't linked together in a way that, for example, jihadist movements are often very tightly linked with a, a central leader to whom one pledged uh, allegiance. Um, so I don't see that there's some sort of coordinated transnational movement out there. If you're not very well organized yourself, uh, on a if you, and if you're mostly on a, operating on a local level, if the real danger is these small local groups who take calls to violence quite literally and act on them, uh, then you know extensive coordination and cooperation is not going to be very likely. One fact that sort of stood out to those of us studying it is that you don't have that many intense rivalries either within this movement. You might think that you would. You do within the jihadist movement. You did within leftist movements. Uh, and you don't see so much of that. And I don't have a good answer, but I we noted it. Uh, so I don't see a huge global movement at, at the moment. Uh, uh, I agree with Ari. I don't think uh, January 6th is so likely again. Uh, it was, uh, now we're prepared. We know it might happen. We never thought such a thing like that would happen. You can see how overwhelmed uh, the security forces were. Uh, so I think probably that uh, things like the, the kidnapping plot against Whitmer, uh, possibly a, a very small group of people who are more able to maintain the kind of discipline uh, of a very small group that maintains its underground character, uh, manages to provide enough security not to be caught. Although, of course, these, the, this was a very amateurish conspiracy, fortunately, for, uh, for Governor Whitmer. You might wind up with a group that had more skill, uh, more discipline, more of a law enforcement or military background and might be able to pull something off. Uh, I think they would like to think of themselves as being globally connected. Uh, but I think in terms of what we've been talking about, the anti-authority, anti-federal government groups, no. Where you're going to see more cooperation, more of a genuine transnational sort of trend, I think would be among white supremacists and the more r racist groups. Uh, the great replacement theory, uh, these sorts of beliefs are, are shared. Uh, and they... Uh, they read others' uh, pronouncements. They follow each other's social media uh, more strongly. So if there is going to be greater cooperation, greater transnational unity, I think it would come from that sector, not so much our anti-government sector. Uh, I, think, I think one area where we see some growing similarities. So traditionally, far-right organization in the U.S. or movements have limited access to the political arena. 
yes, David Duke was elected, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the 70s. But in general, the rhetoric, the discourse of the far right in the U.S. didn't, uh, was able to penetrate into the mainstream political discourse, the mainstream political system. In Europe, it was always different because they, because of their parliamentary system and because of their different electoral systems, we always had some far-right parties that gained some representation, whether it's in the national uh, legislators or in local ones. But now things are actually changing in the U.S. A lot of the narratives and a lot of the ideas that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you could find just in the most extreme platforms are now actually gaining traction within the mainstream political discourse. So in many ways, what we see is that we can actually identify already, uh, uh, you know, politicians that in many ways represent a lot of the ideas of those groups. In this, in this sense, I think we do see some convergence, more similarity to what we've seen in Europe for many years where they always had small parties, you know, far-right parties that were able to gain some kind of traction. And I think, I think what concerns me is that in the U.S., however, uh, this is not an outlet that may reduce violence, right? It's not an outlet that we can say, okay, because they have representation in the parliament, maybe they don't feel the urge to engage in illegal or uh, violent activities. In the U.S., actually, what when you're looking at the data, what you see is the, the opposite. That it's actually empowering them to become more active, in many cases, more violent and engage in illegal activities. Well. One of the, the key concerns about this, this movement, and I'll, I'll just keep using this word for, for practical purposes, but is concerns about what threat it poses. What is the danger from this, this movement? And when we look at the U.S., there's, there's several things that are enshrined in, in constitutional rights for Americans, free speech, gun ownership, and so forth. And a lot of these actors do operate in the sphere of legal protest. But we do also see actors that that tend to cross a line. So we do see a whole spectrum of, of activity and participation and so forth. Um, and so the, the question I pose to you, and, and Martha, maybe I'll start with you and, and Ari uh, following. What do we see as the, the threat from this movement today? What is the, the practical threat um, that it that it hosts or that's within this? And how do we see that potentially evolving or what could continue to to impact that? that threat or the evolution of this going forward. Martha, let's start with you. Well, uh, as I mentioned before, I think the the looming event ahead of us is the 2024 presidential uh, elections. And the presence of Trump, I think things would have been very different had former President Trump accepted his defeat and returned to manage his golf courses and his financial affairs uh, around the world, uh, Trump resorts, I think the, the things would have been very different. So I think that has kept it. There is now a goal uh, for this movement to pursue, which is to reelect Trump and to protect Trump from judicial persecution from their point of view. So I think that's that is to me, that is the the, the looming event ahead of us. It's going to keep people mobilized. And one thing we haven't mentioned so much, we referred to political elites who appear to validate uh, the beliefs of a number of these individuals and groups. They're also the the communicators, the media, the talk show hosts, the radio, uh, uh, satellite radio, uh, the Steve Bannons. Uh, of this world who who do engage in rhetoric that is itself extremely violent 
and portrays the world as extremely threatening to these groups. Uh, they talk about our being on the verge of a civil war. Now is the time to defend yourself. Uh, war is coming. You, you need to defend yourself. There's an urgency uh, and a moral uh, commitment on your part to defend yourself. Again, they perceive themselves as being on the defense, not on the offense against anybody. So I think all of that is creating a situation where uh, events such as uh, crises having to do with immigration, and I agree totally with Ari, this is one of the underlying triggers of the movement is anti-immigration. Uh, when people are encouraged by uh, Trump saying things like immigrants are poisoning the blood of American citizens. Uh, this definitely, it's free speech, certainly. And in the U.S., free speech is regarded as sacrosanct. And I'm very much a free speech advocate, but still you verge on incitement. And I know it's much easier to prove incitement, for example, in Great Britain than it is uh, in the U.S. You simply, you, you're not going to get anywhere with with incitement or generally with libel either uh, or defamation cases. So I see all this as keeping this, this again, movement using the term simply because we don't have a good substitute for it, uh, keeping it alive and making it uh, sensitive to positive, to, to threat in effect, to threats coming out there. Uh, and that puts uh, the Biden administration and would put any other uh, Democratic administration in a very delicate position of things you want to do because you think they're necessary uh, to do them, important, uh, uh, constitutional, uh, pushing it over. Uh, we haven't talked much about the Supreme Court, but uh, uh, lately I think it's been somewhat disappointing uh, to people who, who hold these sorts of beliefs. Uh, they had, uh, for example, thought that uh, the Supreme Court would uh, overturn various attempts to uh, to protect voting rights, for example. Uh, so all these issues that will be talked about extensively by people in the political elite uh, can also be trigger points for the people who are following them, not necessarily directly, but through the medium of people who are going to exaggerate the, uh, the peril lying in front of them. And, and Ari, uh Extending from uh, Martha's comments here, are there other other threats that you see with this movement as well, and or any other kind of trigger events or, or issues you think will continue to drive it forward? So uh, I think we haven't touched a lot. We, we touched a little bit, but not, we didn't talk about the overall consequences of having so much members of the military and law enforcement supporting the movement, supporting some of its ideas, and some of them are actual members of organizations within the within the movement. Uh, I think that naturally uh, erode the trust of many Americans in law enforcement, which is already being challenged quite a lot. Uh, it also may increase uh, the erosion of trust in our armed forces, which is still fairly high, but again, uh, I think this is this is a significant concern, and of course we should be concerned about all the resources that they bring to those movements, both operationally wise, but also in terms of credibility. Another thing that I think it's important to remember, and I think this is related to what uh, Martha mentioned, is the fact that many of those movements are now encouraged to challenge the rules of the game. The electoral process is now being challenged. 
And when there's a delegitimization of the basic fundamental principles of the, of the, of the electoral process, of the, the state of government, when people do not believe anymore uh, in those uh, processes, then naturally it's not, it's not wonder that they are willing to go to the streets and are willing to do uh, some extreme things in order to uh, fight for, uh, for the cause or what they believe is, is a just cause. So I think this is another thing that we need uh, we need to remember. I think it's also worthwhile to uh, to see that our political institutions I don't want to say dysfunctional, but definitely they're not in a good shape right now. I think there's very limited efforts by the government to deal with this increasing polarization. I think joint legislation legislations it's almost non-existent anymore. The, the, you know, the, the most fundamental basic of governance are not being performed by our political institutions, which further intensify the decline in trust in the effectiveness and in the utility of those institutions, right? And I think all that provide further, a, I guess, boost to those groups who are arguing that the government is completely corrupt, it's completely useless, we should challenge it, and so on and so forth. So. I think in many ways the U.S. failed to develop effective mechanism to deal with, with this growing extremism, with the proliferation of these kind of, of extremist ideologies. And what concerns me is that, at least in the foreseeable future, I don't see any progress towards some kind of improvement. I think the, the executive branch is trying to do its best in developing some kind of a domestic, a, a, you know, domestic counterterrorism strategy and all that stuff. But eventually, if we don't see a full uh, mobilization of the legislative, uh, of the judicial, and the, the uh, uh, you know, and the private sector, it won't happen. One place where I have actually uh, some positive notes is about civic society. In the last few years, I was involved in many, many efforts of uh, civil society organizations that are fighting hate, that are trying to promote a different initiative to reduce polarization, to reduce hostility and animosity. And naturally, I'm trying to help as much as I can. Of course, we have you know, finite time and we also have other obligations, but this is the one place where we actually see some positive. There's so many new organizations that are focusing on different types of, of uh, efforts, whether it's trying to uh, fight against uh, Ideological extremist misogyny, whether they're trying to, uh, uh, you know, fight anti-Semitism or, or Islamophobia and so on. This is the one place where I have a lot of hopes because I see how much work they do and how much regular Americans, you know, are investing their own resources and time in order to, you know, make their communities better. And we will be looking at this more in our, our fourth episode. So looking at some of the really practical ways in which we can kind of counter more effectively this, uh, but I am also a perpetual optimist, uh, and Ari, like you, I like to look at, at what can positively be done. And so, Martha, perhaps I turn it to you for a, a final word here. Do you see any uh, any areas where there is proactive work being done to counter this uh, in a little bit more detail, or, or any kind of silver linings or, or areas we could perhaps help foster a little bit more to help counter some of these challenges today? 
Well, I'll just mention a couple of things. One follows along with what uh, Ari was saying about civil society, uh, sort of grassroots, and that has to do with the campaign to restrict access to books because these books are thought of as uh, corrupting in various ways uh, for uh, for children and adolescents. Uh, this is a movement uh, that... It's hard to tell exactly where it came from, but it has a certain centralized dimension to it. It's not purely spontaneous uh, parents. Uh, the, the, the list of books to be banned tends to be the same everywhere. And there's local resistance to this, people this going too far uh, to ban books, We especially children. So sometimes I think that these movements just, they push too far and they're going to provoke resistance. The second thing is the role of political elites. Indeed, political elites have been extremely disappointing, but it is so important for people to speak up. And what would be most most telling, most consequential would be if people who are respected by these groups and individuals that we are concerned about to speak up and say there are limits. Uh, you can oppose the government, but using violence against the government uh, and to admit that the 2020 election was fairly conducted. There, is, there aren't problems with our electoral process. It actually works quite well. Uh, voter fraud is extremely rare and not consequential. If more elites would speak up, and so I can only hope Again, uh, following you, Joanna, and being optimistic that this current terrible dysfunctional state uh, in the U.S. government, particularly the U.S. Congress, uh, might provoke some political leaders to speak out against it and to realize that taking a stand against this kind of totally chaotic uh, mode of governing and encouragement of anti anti-government sentiment uh, is not a good idea that they should take a different direction. Uh, perhaps that's a hope on my part. Thank you so much, Martha and Ari, for speaking with us today about anti-institutional extremism in North America. Don't forget to look at the recent publications on the same topic, including Martha Crenshaw's Transnational Ties Between Selected U.S. and Foreign Violent Extremist Actors from Insight, and Ari Pellinger has a, a new book coming out on ideological violent misogyny and several recently published articles on perspectives on terrorism on anti-Asian violence, which are also on perspective in... I scratched that. I'm going to do the out blurb again. Please bear with me. I apologize. Thank you so much, Martha and Ari, for speaking with us today about anti-institutional extremism in North America. Don't forget to look at the recent publications on the same topic, including Martha's co-authored report, Transnational Ties Between Selected U.S. and Foreign Violent Extremist Actors for Insight. Ari Parlinger also has a, a forthcoming book on ideological violent misogyny uh, and recent articles in Perspectives on Terrorism on Anti-Asian Violence that we encourage you to have a look at as well. Thank you so much. And uh, in our next episode, we'll look at anti-institutional extremism in the case of Europe. This podcast episode was created by the International Center for Counterterrorism and is part of the series Anti-Institutional Extremism, Causes and Responses. You can find more episodes and information about our work on our website, www.icct.nl. This show is available on any major podcast service, so please subscribe and spread the word.